All right, so today we're going to be finishing up the, the, second, the first half of the book of Ephesians. And this is such an incredible passage as we look at Paul's prayer that uh, after, after hitting the heights of talking about God's grace and all the things of who Christ has made us to be, now he's going to, in just awe and wonder, kind of bring this to a conclusion as we move towards the second half of the letter. And as we're moving towards celebrating the incarnation of Christ, that Jesus became one of us, that God became human to, in order to, to draw us back unto himself, that he gave his life for us, that we can have life. This incredible act of God's love that we celebrate at Christmas, this is the perfect passage for us to look at as Paul is celebrating the incredible, indescribable love that God has for us. And so the title of today's message is God Wants to Blow Our Minds with His Love and with His Power. And that really is what happens in this. And and Christmas is definitely a mind-blowing thing when you think about what God has done, pouring His love out upon us and sending His own Son to us, becoming one of us for all of eternity that we can draw near to Him. And so as you look at this today, you're going to see Paul reaching kind of the climax of this letter of of his own energy and his own passion and excitement for what God is doing. And uh, I I only hope that I can have a little little twinge, a a tiny fraction of his passion and excitement today as we we jump into this. So, all right, let's jump in. So we're going to read this together. Verse 14 starting, he says, uh, if we put that up there. So starting in verse 14, he says, for this reason, and he says, I bow my knees before the Father. And right there he says, for this reason, that really is referring to all of chapter chapters 1 through 3, of saying everything that Christ has done for us, that's the reason he bows his knees, and specifically to what we just talked about in chapter 3, where he's going to talk about that Christ has called all Gentiles and Jews to be able to come together as one people with him. And then he says in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And again, notice in Paul how many of the alls and the everies we see. He's constantly talking about every and all, referring to all the people. It's not just about the Jews, but God wants everyone to be there with him. And then verse 16, now we're going to get to the, 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 crux, the, the crux of what we're talking about today. He says, that according to the riches of his glory, this is Paul's prayer, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is just so caught up in wonder, and he even gives this doxology, this final statement here of the prayer in verse 20, that he just keeps going higher and higher in, his, in the glory of God, and he says 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, that all we ask or think or imagine according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is quite a prayer. So I want us to take a few minutes to to break it down and and look at it. So we're to zero in on 16 to 19 and we'll finish with 20 to 21. But let's look at the NIV now this time, starting in verse 16. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. All right, so in this prayer, Paul gives three specific requests that he's asking for of God for the Ephesian people. 
And now in that, it's not quite as clear in the English, but if you, in, in the Greek, it's super clear, just obvious. The word that is set in line with each of these. There's three specific things he prays for. And so number one in verse 17, he's praying that God would give them power through his spirit and also through the fact that Jesus dwells with them, the indwelling of Christ. So that's the first thing he prays for, the first request, that God would give them power through his spirit and do, as he dwells with them. The second request in verse 18 is that God would empower them to grasp the magnitude of Christ's love. That's the second request, that they would grasp the magnitude, how incredibly vast and amazing it is. And the third request is that they would be filled to the full measure of God's own fullness in Christ, which is Jesus. Now, what's fascinating about these three requests is we've been following along in Ephesians up to this point, Paul has already said they have all three of these things. They've already gotten these. They, they received them when they, were, when they accepted Christ. They, they, it was there from the beginning of time that God planned to give them. Paul has been emphasizing each of these the entire letter. I mean, first, the number one, he says, when he prays that, they would, that God would give them power through the Spirit and dwell with them. You see, but already in this letter, so many times, Paul has been emphasizing that God dwells with them and his power is already with them. He says it over and over and over again. Back in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul said this, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe. Right? And he says that, that this is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. So he's already said, you already have this power. The power that raised Christ from the dead is already towards you and for you in the spirit for all those who are believers. So we already have this power. He's made it abundantly clear already that we dwell with Christ. He, he dwells with us. I mean, how many times has Paul said we are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ? So uh, in 2.22, in fact, he says, and in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives. They, they have this. So the second request he makes, that they would grasp the love of Christ. I mean, he spent an entirety of the first three chapters explaining how much Christ loves them right? Explaining over and over, analogy after analogy of how much Christ loves them. So why is he again praying that they would understand this? Number three, he prays that they would be filled with the fullness of God, which is Christ. Again, he's already said it many times. They have the fullness of God. In fact, in Colossians, he states it perfectly clear. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Christ is fully God in his fullness. And then he says in verse 10, and in Christ, you have already been brought to fullness, they already have it. So why is Paul praying this then? Why does Paul ask God to give the Ephesians things they already have? Why isn't he praying instead for God to protect them from, from harm or persecution or heal them of diseases or, or, or encourage them and give them boldness to preach the gospel when they're struggling and their neighbors are trying to kill them and people are starting to die for their faith? Why doesn't he pray for all the needs and all the things that are on the prayer list that he prays through? Why isn't that what he's praying here? Why instead is he praying for what they already have? Tim Keller gives a great answer to this, he says. There's only one possible answer of why he repeats himself and prays for these things. He says, it's one thing to believe in and trust the love of Christ. It's another thing to experience the love of Christ in your inner being. See, that inner being means your heart, the, the very center of who we are, the very center of our consciousness, our personality. The inner being means our heart of hearts. It's, it's the very center of our identity. It makes us who we are. And so it's one thing to know and trust the love of Christ. It's another thing to actually experience these things and to experience it in your inner self. It, it, they're very, very different things, to know and to experience. 
You see, it's one thing to know about the love of Christ. I mean, you could say, I know he did all this stuff. I've heard it a thousand times. It's another thing to grasp how deep and wide and long and high is the love of Christ. What Paul is talking about is the difference between having something be true of you, having something perhaps uh, in in principle or, or, or understanding something in theory, and actually experiencing it in the inner being of your heart. Knowing and experiencing are very, very different things. Uh, Tim Keller uses a beautiful example of this. I'm actually going to adapt a little bit but, and, and steal. But he, he, imagine that like back in the late 90s or something, a relative died and they gave you some money in their will. You have no idea how much. You knew it wouldn't be a lot. And they put it in an investment account for you and you've forgotten about it. But over the years, you've experienced extreme poverty. You've, you've been struggling to pay your bills, racking up massive credit card debt, living in poverty year after year after year until finally you aren't even able to put food on the table. You're struggling. You are dirt poor. You can't get by. And you remember, oh yeah, a couple of decades ago, I think I was given some money in an account somewhere, and maybe I should look into that. And so you go look, and you found out that they put $40,000 in an investment account. You're like, that's awesome. That almost pays off my credit card debt. But I'm still dirt poor. What good is that going to do? I mean, that's nice. And then you found out they actually, it was an investment account in Apple stock in the late 90s. You're like, awesome. I now have $10 million. Like, this is incredible. I am now rich. So you actually have been rich the entire time. But imagine this. That today you may have $10 million. In fact, you've had that this, this whole time, that you've been living in great poverty even though you're rich. But you weren't making that a reality. right? You, you've had it. It's yours. But it was just an idea. It was a theory. It wasn't something you actually had. And it makes it no less true that you're rich, but you're not living out of it. right? Because it's just something that's, that's yours and it's in your name, but it's not something you're actually living out of. It's, it isn't your reality or your experience regardless if it's true or not. And this is what Paul is saying is happening to most Christians. They are loved by Jesus. Jesus dwells with them. They have his spirit of power, but they're not living in that reality. They're still living like they are poor. They're they're not living a life empowered by the spirit. They're not aware, experiencing this amazing love of Christ. Kind of like the cruise ship story we shared last week. They're still eating stale bread and cheese when this incredible buffet is available to them. So Paul prays for the Ephesians that God would open their eyes to experience and make it real for them. They would grasp the incredible love of God, the depth and breadth and width of it. They'd be empowered by his spirit with power. They would experience the reality of the dwelling of Christ. That They would know that they are loved and that they are adopted into God's family and that they dwell with Christ. But it's not, they may know these things in their head, but he's praying it would actually become their experience. It become the way in which they live. That the, the Ephesians, they're struggling with their identity. They're struggling with their purpose and their value. They aren't living out of the reality of who Christ has called them to be. They haven't experienced it in their inner being. I mean, is there anyone here who, who struggles with insecurity? Right? Probably most of us, if we're honest. We, we struggle with our worth and our value. We struggle with our identity of feeling that maybe that we're worthy of the love of God or worthy of the love of others or, or like our worth and our value is tied to what we produce or how good our kids are or, or something else. We, we struggle to actually experience the approval and the love of Christ. We're in the same club as the Ephesians. And Paul's saying they know what is true, but it's not become a reality for them. Knowing isn't enough. They have to experience it. And so... We read again that God's power is toward us, as we saw earlier in chapter 1, verse 19. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is for us. We read here that he empowers us by his presence, that his spirit is with us with power. 
In fact, just in our reading today, Paul speaks of the Spirit's power available to us multiple times. Verse 16, he said, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit. Verse 20 says, now to him who is able, and able is the wrong word. The Greek word there is actually has to do with power. It's, it's the same word we get dynamite from. So that now God who is, has the power to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within it. This is what God is saying about us. So the first question is, do we actually believe that? Do we believe that the Holy Spirit actually dwells with us? That the Spirit empowers us? Do we believe that God's power is infinite? And if, if we know the Lord been following him for a while, hopefully we believe these things because it's just right there in Scripture. It's standard doctrine, standard teaching. In fact, we could take these teachings, and we do, and we could put them in our doctrinal statement. We can put them on our webpage for us to look at. We can enshrine them in our constitution that takes a vote of all the members in the body. We can put them on a sign at the front of our, our door that everyone sees when they're walking in that God is empowering us with a spirit and his love for us is beyond comprehension. But if we don't live in that reality... If that is not what we live out of, it's just as valuable as having $10 million in a bank account that we never touch. Or maybe having 10,000 bitcoins on a USB drive from mining back a decade ago that I threw away or lost long ago and don't know where it's at, right? It, it's worthless. It's just information if we don't live out of it. And this is what Paul is talking about, that we would pray that he would, this, he's praying this would become a reality for the Ephesians. And we'd be praying the same thing and acting upon it. So do we live like this is real? Do we expect God to move when we pray? Do we expect to encounter Him in His Word? Do we expect to meet with Him in our times of worship? This is what Paul is praying for in Ephesian believers. You see, the Ephesian believers were terrified as he's writing this letter. Their enemies are literally trying to kill them. They're terrified of the demonic powers that they're up against. They wonder whether they can really believe that God is this powerful, whether he really loves them this much, whether people who are idolaters and sexual deviants involved in endless kinds of sin, whether or not this God actually loves them this much and has the power to deliver them. And so Paul shows them this letter, and it's, if it's true for them, it's just as true for us today. So let's jump in. Verse 16, he starts this way. He says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, Paul prays that we would experience God's power through His Spirit according to the riches of God's glory. And what is the riches of God's glory? What does that mean? I mean, they're infinite. He's saying that's the power we would experience of God according to the riches of His glory, according to the infinite riches and glory of God, we would experience His power. As Christians, we should experience His power in us and through our lives as a body. And this isn't some like prosperity gospel message out of TBN or something. I'm not wearing fancy jewelry. I don't got all the money. I don't have the big house, right? This isn't saying that we're all just going like, to just, just do some weird, funky thing with this. This is Paul speaking directly the words of Christ to us. That we should experience His power moving in and through our lives. Power to heal, power to deliver, power to overcome addictions, power to love sacrificially, power to endure hardship, endure loss and grief, power to forgive those who hurt us. We should experience the Spirit's power as a body of Christ. Is that how we pray? Is that a hunger in our hearts that, God, I want to experience your power in and through my life? This passage should encourage us to pray with greater expectation. It should really, as we keep going, really mess with your prayer life in a good way. It should change how we pray. It should fire us up and think, Lord, I, my view of things is way too small. 
Lord, help me to focus on you and what you want to do instead of just the little measly things I think that are possible. Maybe most of us pray what we can do and then maybe like 1% more. And he's saying, no, no, no. The God of the universe says he empowers us. So we're going to keep going. Okay, he says, Paul's praying that not just that their circumstances change. He isn't praying for the persecution to stop here. He's not even praying for healing. He's not praying for boldness. What is he praying for? He's not praying for their circumstances to change. It's good to pray for those things. I mean, it's good to pray for sickness. It's good to pray for others' requests. That's one of the greatest strengths of this church is we're a praying people, and we pray, and, and Steve has embedded that in our body. I mean, we have people praying before service, after service. We have all through the week of people praying for one another, and that is so beautiful. What Paul is saying here is that sometimes we can get a little rote in our prayers, Right? Because we can just go through a list and pray for the needs that we see and what we think are the best solutions. But he's saying God is wanting to move in ways that we can't see. Way beyond that. Things we can't even imagine. And sometimes in our heads we can get so focused on the list of things to pray that we, we lose sight of what God is wanting to do. Beyond what we can ask or imagine as he describes it. Paul's trying to lift their eyes up beyond their own circumstances and see this incredibly wider scope of what God wants to do. And so he says... For them, that he wants them to see that they're praying to the God of the universe. They're not praying for the God of the possible, but the God of the impossible, the God who can make things happen. You don't have to pray what we believe can happen if circumstances just line up and then maybe 1% above that. We can pray and trust that God wants to do the miraculous and the impossible in his power by his spirit. That when we pray to the God of the universe who created the world with the sound of his voice, and we're not praying to some divine vending machine who just hands out blessings and answers kind of in the measure to which we give, but the creator of the cosmos. And this should really mess with our prayer life because Paul is praying not for their circumstances to change, but he's praying that they would change in such a way that no matter their circumstances, they would experience God. That's a whole nother level. Right, he's praying that they would have such an awareness of who God is, experience him such depth of love and his power, that no matter the circumstances, even if the healing doesn't happen, even if the hardship continues, even if the prayer is not answered the way that we expect, that we actually are closer to God, we experience his power, we experience his love, we know that he is with us, no matter the circumstances. That is what he's praying here. Something so far beyond just, Lord, please do this one thing. It is so much greater, he's saying, no, that we would be transformed by his love and by his power. We need to increasingly pray like Paul with expectation that God is moving on the move and that he wants to do so much more than we often give him credit for. So yes, learn from him. And yes, keep praying through our prayer list. We will not stop as a church praying for one another, but then also lift our eyes higher. Pray not just for our circumstances to change, but for us to change. For us to have a greater revelation of who he is and to experience Christ. Amen? All right. Then he gets to verse 17. He says this. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now, he prays that they may experience the nearness and intimacy of dwelling with Christ. We've talked a lot about that. And then he uses this incredible phrase, that you be rooted and grounded in love. And I want to look at that this morning. To emphasize what this love looks like, that they are to dwell in, in and, and live out of, he uses two different images here. The first one, both of them are going to emphasize the depth, and not surface level of but the clear, incredible depth of love. But the first one he prays is them to be rooted in Christ's love. Now this is referring to a well-rooted tree, that the roots go deep into the soil. And, and what is that soil that he describes it? Is that's the love of Christ. The incredible love of Christ. 
that roots that go deep into the soil of God's love for us. And that's what we are to be rooted in, deeply into the love of Christ. Because what do roots do? It doesn't just mean it holds us. The roots are what give us life. The nutrient, the soil is pulling from that the life that infiltrates and permeates every part of the tree. Every single aspect that is rooted and transformed and changed as it's planted deep into the soil of God's love. That Christ's love is what should give them life, as we've been talking about. That his love course should be coursing through our bodies. Like roots that are, that are going down deep, that, that course through every part of the tree and the branches and the leaves. We're to be rooted in Christ's love. That is what's supposed to fill us, transform us, and be in every single corner, every single nook and cranny of our lives. Then he uses another picture, he says, and to be grounded in his love. And now he's going to go from an agricultural image, in the Greek it's very clear, it's an architectural image now. To be grounded is to be the foundation of a building, is what he's referring to here. That, that foundation, that, or even that the foundation is built upon, that grounded, meaning that foundation that everything is built upon. What our lives as Christians are to be built upon, founded on, grounded upon, is the love of Christ. That that is the centerpiece, the foundation, that is everything that we are built upon is supposed to be the love of Christ pouring through us, engaging in us, and that is what is supposed to infiltrate, affect every part of our life, rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Deeply rooted, drawing life from Christ, and a foundation that is built upon the love of Christ of Christ's sacrificial love through his spirit that shapes and forms every single thing that we do. We must be rooted and grounded in his love. We must actually, experientially, not theoretically or just in our head or to say we understand or we know it, but practically to actually be living lives that are drenched with the radical sacrificial love for others. This is what we as Christians are supposed to be known for, Paul says over and over again, to actually be living and loving like Jesus. This is the foundation. It's what we're rooted in. It's the soil that we're supposed to be grounded in and rooted in. It's the foundation we are built upon to experience his love and become apprentices to Jesus, to actually live and love like Jesus. That's our calling as his followers, as his body, to be rooted and grounded in his love. Everything we do should come from that, like nutrients that are coming out of the roots into the tree. This is what should define us as the body of Christ. What should define us is not our knowledge, not, not even our doctrine, not what we're for or what we're against. He doesn't say be rooted in knowledge or be rooted in doctrine. Not those are bad. Those are beautiful and wonderful things. I love doctrine. But that's not what he says be rooted and grounded in. He says be rooted and grounded in Christ's love. That is what should shape every single aspect of who we are. And he's speaking to a Greek audience who are prone to rationalism. They're prone to just keep everything in the head and keep it all as ideas. That's where they're, they're prone to, and he's, and, which really isn't that much different from us today. But he's not done yet. He's going to keep going to this prayer. This whole section, actually, in the Greek is just one long, massive run-on sentence. And so he says here in the next verse, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I mean, he just keeps going. It's like he's just ratcheting up, just spinning higher and higher and higher. And I know I can get a little bit excited or passionate when I'm speaking, but I can't hold a candle to what Paul's doing here, right? He, he's a whole nother level than I will ever be able to attain. And, and so when he prays, he's praying that with love as the foundation, they again have power, 
not individually. Notice this. It's not that they would have power, and it's because it's not about me having power. He says this is corporately to get, when they come together as a body of Christ, that is where their power lies. Not in individuals, as they come together as a body, but power to do what? Notice what this power is for. Power to grasp how wide and deep and long and high is the love of Christ. What? All we're in coming together, the power of the Spirit, all this empowering is simply for us to grasp God's love? I mean, he's saying they, they need the empowering presence of the Spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in heaven. They need that power, not just by themselves, as a whole community gathering together. They need to all be gathered, all coming to God, receiving the Spirit in order to do what? Because only then will they be able to grasp how insanely, um, begin, sorry, not grasp, begin to grasp how insanely amazing God's love is. Is that the God we serve? Is he really that good? Because it's not enough just for them to be able to grasp it alone. It's not something they can just get. It's not something they can get on their own, and they need the Spirit's power to grasp it. This is how absolutely, insanely, overwhelmingly amazing God's love is. You see that? And what's even more amazing is this word grasp in the English. In the Greek, it comes, it's actually a military word that's used in the Old Testament to describe taking a city, fighting for something, wrestling for something. So what that means is it's something we have to fight to understand. We don't just grasp, it's not just understand, oh, now I get it. No, it's, you must grasp it. You must go after it. You must fight for it because it's not going to come easy. You must fight to understand how insanely amazing God's love is. You have to press in because it's too incredible and amazing and wonderful for us just to receive, but we have to keep pressing in and it's inexhaustible. There is no matter how much we understand of it, we keep pressing in to get more and more and more. Not only this side of eternity, but for all of eternity, we'll never get to the depths or the breadth or the width or the length of it. But he says we must fight to grasp it together as a body, together as one by one, together through the power of the Spirit praying for greater revelation, worshiping with with greater intensity, keeping fighting to grasp just how amazing his love is, how high and wide and deep it is. Isn't that incredible? This is what so much of our times of prayer and worship should be, just pressing into how incredible God is and seeking his wisdom and his life just pressing in and fighting to grasp the beauty and the wonder of God. That's what so much of worship and prayer is. I, I, I know I'm a little weird, but I honestly can't understand how someone can worship this God that's this amazing and stand with hands in the pocket singing in a monotone voice, maybe just sipping a coffee and go, hmm, yeah. I mean, I don't get that. Do you not hear what Paul is saying here about how amazing this God is? How can we not jump up and down and shout, thank you, Jesus. For this love that's so overwhelming, we must press in. We need to beg God, as Paul says, for a greater understanding of this Jesus and how amazing his love is because it's inexhaustible. We got to get out of our heads. We, we have to let it overwhelm us. We have to try to move from just a place of knowing and understanding and ideas to experiencing his life and have to fight to do that with the Spirit and with one another is what he's saying. I mean, can you hear the excitement in Paul's voice? I, I could barely even convey the beginnings of it. Because to him, Jesus is not a belief system. Jesus is life to Paul. Paul can't pray with his hands in his pockets in a monotone voice like he's ordering something from Taco Bell in the drive-thru lane, right? That's not the way he prays his prayer. He's not saying, may they have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and deep. No, no, that's not what he's saying. He's passionately coming before Jesus and so gives him life and he's begging that God take what he has understood and pour it into his people. 
He is consumed with a love for Jesus, almost like Paul is deeply rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Almost like he's begun to experience what that is, and his greatest longing of his heart is that they would grow in understanding that as well. And he's just warming up at this point. Verse 19, he says, And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. I love this. He prays an impossible prayer. After talking about experiencing God's love, now he says he wants them to know Jesus' love that surpasses knowledge. What? And what problem with that statement? You're supposed to know something that surpasses knowing. How does that work? But remember, in the Greek, knowing isn't just knowledge in the head. Knowing is experiencing in the Greek language. And so what he's saying, that you can't know what surpasses knowledge, but you can experience it. I love Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, don't all Christians already know the love of Christ? I mean, well, they should. I mean, it's really clear in Scripture. But he gives an illustration. He says, in every marriage, at some point, at least one partner will turn to the other spouse and say something like, you know, I know we're married, but I don't feel married. In fact, I don't even really doubt your love for me. I, don't, I just don't feel your love for me. Because you're not expressing your love for me in ways that console and, and comfort and delight my heart. I know I'm married. I just don't experience being married. I know I'm loved. I just don't experience your love. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but as a married couple, I'm sure you felt that way often. Sarah and I were literally just talking about this passage last night. We went through a pretty rough couple months of sickness and loss, and and at some of those times, we just felt like roommates. We know we love. We know we're married, but it sure didn't feel like it. Paul is not saying here, I pray that you're going to understand the concept of Christ's love. But yet so many Christians, that's kind of where we stop. It's an idea, it's a theory, it's a doctrine we can check off. But he says, I pray that you're going to experience the actuality of Christ's love, Christ's actual love. This is what prayer should be. This is what Bible meditation should be. It's an inward experience through which Christ becomes as real to us as any other person, if not more so, so so that his love and his approval is more real, more affecting, more sweet, more important than your parents' love or your love for a child. This is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians, that they experience it. Do we want this, church? Do we want this? I mean, how does anyone not read this and just get overwhelmed with the goodness of Jesus and deeply long for more of him? He's so good. And we don't have to wait until heaven to experience this because of Christmas, because Jesus came and now he dwells with us for all of eternity. We can experience this here and now. He wants that for us here and now. Paul isn't talking about eternal realities. He's talking about now. This is for here and now. And I want to emphasize something here before I move on, though, and that is Paul is not saying we should always feel a feeling of elation. It's about pursuing this feeling because even Paul speaks that sometimes are hard. I just want to take a brief sidetrack just to emphasize that things aren't always going to feel the experience of God's love. Scripture is filled with stories of, of great saints who go through times of darkness and hardship and, and loss where they don't actually feel the empowering presence of God or, or life in Christ. So this doesn't mean that being a Christian is all rainbows and unicorns and floating on clouds and, and happiness and, 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 and power and anointing. In fact, this summer we did a whole series on that called But God. Go back and listen. I did one specific one where I did a, 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 one of the messages at the end called, I think, uh, Anxiousness and Despair, looking at Psalm 88, the worst chapter in the Bible. Right? It's, it's actually beautiful, but it's hard. It's depressing because it's a, it's a song that God puts in the Bible that's all about God being distant 
God not being present and how we have despair, and there's no hope in the entire chapter. But God put that there because he wants us to sing it because he knows it's real. Go back and listen to that message if, if you forgot it back from the, the summer. But that's one of the reasons Paul prays so desperately for this here for them. Because he knows he, they need to experience life in God and to truly know him and experience his love, to be so rooted in his love that they can weather any storm when they can't feel it or touch it or taste it or see it. When they're in that place of that dark night of the soul, where in that place, that season of difficulty, they know that it's real beyond real, beyond real, beyond real. As they start deconstructing their faith, yes, they can change. Okay, do I believe that or that or that? But they know that Jesus is real. For our young people, as they move beyond high school, we see that 66% that turn away from Jesus. But if they know that Jesus is real, they've experienced him, that they can question all that stuff and they can deal with the doctrine and the beliefs and we can walk with them, but they know that he's real. Paul is saying, I want you to experience his power and experience his life. We have to lean in because there are going to be times of dryness. And one of the problem with those seasons of dryness though is that sometimes for, for many of us as Christians in those times of dryness, you know, we're just holding on to truth. We're holding on what we know is true, even though we don't feel it. The problem is sometimes when that season of dryness ends, we stay there. Because we give up on God's love being an experience. And, and some of you are in that place right now that there's been a long series of dryness and you just, well, I guess that's the way it's going to be. I'm going to believe in God. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to obey him. But I don't really believe he wants to meet with me anymore. And so we stop pressing into God's insane love. We just read over those passages and ones like this, they just kind of annoy us. We think that that guy on stage is just jumping up and down over something that is really just an idea. We stop praying for his power to empower us, his spirit to empower us and to move. We don't press into his power and his love and lose the passion and excitement. And we cannot let that happen. If this is you today and you're in that place, oh, come to Jesus and just say, Lord, I'm sorry. Father, help me to believe again of what you want for me and for our lives. We must press into Jesus to experience his love and his power. Okay, now Paul's going to reach the climax in verse 20. And this is just incredible. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know, some may feel up to this point that Paul's just dealing in hyperbole. Maybe this is all exaggeration. These are just ideas that sound nice and it's, it's unattainable. Surely he doesn't actually believe that we should experience God's love like that. Surely he doesn't actually believe that that power is towards us who are believers. Surely he doesn't believe the Spirit really wants us to empower, to grasp that amazing love of Christ. He doesn't actually believe this stuff, right? So he comes to 20, he doubles down and says, you aren't even, we aren't even touching the surface. We aren't even scratching the surface right now. In fact, actually what I've prayed for up to this point is nothing in comparison to what God wants to do. The scholar F.F. F. Bruce puts it this way in his commentary on Ephesians. He says, it is impossible to ask God for too much. His capacity for giving, check this, far exceeds his people's capacity for asking or even imagining. That's not some charismatic guy. That's like a straight arrow scholar, academic, one of the most brilliant New Testament scholars alive, right? This is him saying his capacity for giving far exceeds his people's capacity for asking. That's what Paul is saying here. It seems that Paul's been over the top so far. But Paul here is saying God can do so much more and he wants to than anything we could ever, ever ask or imagine. 
He says here in verse 20, God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think or imagine according to the power at work within us. And again, the English there, it doesn't work. There's a, it's a bad translation because in the Greek, it actually kind of, the words kind of build upon themselves to create this incredible excitement where it says a better translation would be like, he has, and also it's not, the word able isn't there. The word in the Greek is power. God has the power to do infinitely more. That's what it's, he uses multiple words that build upon each other. So infinitely far above anything, far, 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 far beyond anything we could ever imagine imagine or ask or desire, that's what God has the power to do. Is that the God we serve? Do we believe that? J.B. Phillips wrote a great book many years ago entitled, Your God is Too Small. What a great name for a book. We, we often settle to try and just fit God into our heads. We, we make him in our image. We're convinced that he'd vote like us, do the stuff we would do, live like we would live. And we make Jesus and God into an idol of our own making, around our own desires. We all do it. We shrink him down to our own understanding. If we don't understand something, we say, well, God wouldn't do that, and surely he wouldn't do that because I wouldn't do that, therefore God wouldn't do that, or I don't understand that, so therefore God wouldn't do that. And we, we make God an idol in our own image, really. We shrink him to our understanding. What he, Paul is saying here is we must expand our understanding and our experience to recognize how incredible and amazing God is. Not try to fit God down into our own understanding, which is what we do. We must expand to understand Him, not take God and try to fit Him into us. If our image of God is limited to our own understanding, He's too small. He's too distant. He's too boring. He's too inept to consume our thoughts and our desires, our lives and our devotion. He's not worth obeying. We can attend church on Sundays and, and maybe read some stuff about him. We can, we can do all that stuff. We can sing songs about him, but he doesn't consume our thoughts and our lives like Paul describes. We can sing all the songs we want, and, and we can even call it worship. We can dutifully read through a list, and we can even call it prayer. We can formulaically read for a couple hours of the Bible, a couple chapters of the Bible, and be content and say we've encountered him. But Paul is screaming here, there is so much more. For most Christians, the God we worship is way too small. Amen? God is alive and he dwells with us and his love for us is more than we could ever imagine. Paul says we can't begin to fathom all that God wants to do in and through us. Oh, Jesus. And so today, as we finish up today and wrap this up, this chapter 3, we, we can see that, that Paul is telling them the only way they're going to be able to live in the midst of Ephesus, the only way that they're going to be able to live in this horrific place of people coming against them constantly is if they can grasp and experience how amazing God's love is and how real his power is, how much they are loved, about that God is empowering them to go out and live and love like them. It has to consume them. Otherwise, there's no way they're going to make it as a body in the city of Ephesus with that much attack. And I don't believe it's much different for us today. And I believe that's one of the reasons the church, not Northview, but the church across this country is in such bad shape. Because we aren't consumed with those realities. We're consumed with ourselves. I love the challenge laid down by Dr. Snodgrass in his, his commentary on Ephesians. I have to refer to this, the NIV application commentary, but he says this, I'll read it. There is a problem, he says. Paul prays for power and strength for his readers, and he asserts that God is both able and at work in them. This is a lofty goal and description, he says. But if this is so, if the Spirit is supposed to empower Christians, here's the question, why don't we experience this power more and this love more? Why are the church and its people so ineffective? 
He goes, this is a problem we, we must face. But only two answers can be given. Either, one, the theology is wrong. This isn't real. It's all garbage. Paul was lying, making it up, or just all exaggerating. It sounds nice, but God is neither able nor is he actually at work. That's the first option. Option two, the theology is right, but we abort the process. The answer, he says, the problem is with us, not with God. The Spirit of Christ does not work in us without our willingness, nor does He move us to the desired goal overnight. He lives with us, and this, is a gr- life, this life is a growth process. We are finite, limited, and prone to failure. And here it is. The real problem is that we do not care enough. We do not have the necessary discontent within ourselves that will lead to change. Oh, that stings. Church, do we have the necessary discontent within ourselves that will lead to change? Say, Lord, I want more. I'm not going to be satisfied. This is what Paul is praying for the Ephesians. They would grasp. They would fight for this. They would press into God, hunger for more of Him, beg God for a greater revelation of His love and His power, to pray and worship with fervor and passion, and long for the Holy Spirit to empower them to be so rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus, so permeated as His love flows through their body to their uttermost parts that it shapes all of what we say, all of what we do, and draws the world to Jesus. That we are so rooted and grounded in his love that his love pours out from us into the world around us. That should be our prayer and our intentional pursuit. That God wants it even more than we do. And he has the power to do far more than we could ever ask or imagine. Which is awesome. Because I'm imagining God to do some pretty awesome things through Northview and into this community and through our lives. I was meditating on this passage this past week and I literally was just jumping up and down. I couldn't sit still and I'm like, Lord, my vision's too small. Lord, do it, God. All the things that you've been I, I in my head of what I want to see God do in the way we impact the community and see poverty eradicated in this area and pouring into the low-income communities and seeing people come to Christ and all that. Lord, I recognize it's too small. Do it, Lord. Raise my eyes to see what you want to do infinitely more than I could ask or imagine. I just couldn't sit still, just jumping. Lord, do it, do it, do it, do it, God. God is excited by what he wants to do. Are we willing, are we discontent with the norm? Are we like, ah, it's okay. It's enough. Paul's saying it isn't. Our God we serve is too small. Jesus, change Mill Creek. Change Everett, change Bothell. Draw people unto yourself. Is anyone with me? This is what God is asking for. This is what Paul is praying for. That we change. Not just that our circumstances change. So yes, We must pray into God and yes, keep reading the Bible in a year, but oh my goodness, do not just read as much as you can. Stop, dig in and say, Lord, I won't be done until I encounter you. Jesus, show me what you want. So as you finish this morning, we're going to move to worship now. The worship team, you can come up. And I want us to pray this prayer with Paul as we finish. So could I just have everyone stand up? I want to pray this prayer. We're not going to read this prayer. I want to pray this prayer as a body. If you can't stand, I get it. But let's pray this prayer of Paul. Okay. Pray it out loud, please. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. 
and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now as we stand, I want to ask that you continue that, and right now, in your own words, Cry that out to the Lord in your own words. I know this may be different for some of you, but right now, out loud, right now, I beg of you just to come before God and say, Lord, I want this right now as a body. We are discontent. We want to change and experience more of your love and more of your spirit. So right now, as a body, let's lift up our voices and ask God for that right now. Jesus, we come to you. And Father, I just say, Lord, we want more of your love. We want to be empowered by your spirit, O Lord. Pray with me. May we grasp, may we fight, may we press into it. May we experience how wide and high and long and deep is your love, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, right now, destroy any apathy in our midst. Jesus, wake us up to your love, Lord Jesus, your spirit and your power. Holy Spirit, fall and move in our midst. Draw us into your embrace. Holy Spirit, reignite hearts that have grown cold. Jesus, consume our thoughts and our lives. Holy Spirit, by your Spirit, fill us to the full measure of you, Jesus. May we hunger for you in prayer, Lord. May we encounter you in your word. May we draw near to you in worship, Jesus. May we be tired of being lords of our own life. And say, Jesus, move. Have your way. Oh, Jesus. Thank you for your love. Oh, Jesus. Draw us deeper into your embrace, Father. Thank you, Lord.